Welcome to Dispatches, a shorter podcast from the old front line, and me, military historian Paul Reed. In August 1914, twelve mighty forts encircled Liège to defend Belgium, a neutral country, against any aggressor. And at one of those, Fort de Lancer, a tragic story of heroism and destruction played out under those summer skies. I've just returned from a battlefield recce, looking at an early period of the Great War and examining the battles and battlefields of August 1914 in eastern Belgium, areas like Charleroi, Namur, Dinant and Liège. And these are all places where significant battles were fought before the first British shots of the Great War were fired. These are places that I visited quite a lot in the 1990s and early 2000s when I was living on the battlefields of the Great War, but I've not been back to look at them in any kind of detail for a while. And this recce was for a tour that I originally planned for the centenary of the Great War in 2014, but that year we were especially busy and it was kind of put to one side and it's taken now 10 years to get this new tour across the line and that's not uncommon in the way that we plan and kind of put battlefield tours out there we can keep these kind of little gems ticking away and this year being the 110th anniversary of 1914 it seemed a good opportunity to bring that tour back so battlefield recce's both for the kind of tour work that we do and anyone interested in the subject of the Great War, really important, I think, because they get us out onto the battlefields, they get us connected to the battlefields, and when we're doing this from a battlefield tour point of view, we're not so much looking at just the history, we're looking at the kind of logistics of it and the practicalities, access, and where we'll deliver talks to people and kind of what we might talk about, because every area that you go to, so many themes come up and certainly this last week being out on those battlefields we came across so many different aspects of the great war not just stuff to do with 1914 in fact not just stuff to do with the great war it's part of that cockpit of europe where conflict has raged for a very long time and we saw for example the grave of a senior german officer who had been killed just after the battle Waterloo as German Prussian troops came down into Namur and at the kind of other end of the scale we were looking at a big World War II plot of Belgian civilians who'd been killed in American bombing raids on the city of Namur trying to wipe out the railway marshalling areas to prevent Nazi Germany from reinforcing its troops and moving supplies and logistics around and these Belgian civilians have been caught in that bombing and been killed, which ties into Masters of the Air, which some of you may be watching on Apple TV. So you can see that when we do these recces, although we're there to, in this case, concentrate on the Great War, we come across all kinds of other things. And being interested in those other periods of military history, you kind of can't help but dive in and out of them. And they're all linked one way or another. 
the outcome of Waterloo and the rise of Prussian nationalism leads directly to the Great War and the outcome of the Great War leads to events in a second Great War a generation later. But during that recce we visit a lot of sites connected with that August 1914 period and one of those really stood out for me and that was Fort de Lonsin near Liège, one of those 12 forts that surrounded the city of Liège in 1914 and saw the brunt of the first phase of the advance of the Schlieffen Plan there as that part of the Schlieffen Plan took German troops en route to France. And for me, although I've examined some of these battlefields before, Fort de Lonsin was a new visit for me and shows that even after so many years, there's always something new to discover on the old front line. And that's really important because it's not a static subject. We often talk about the last page of the history never been turned, but it's also, I think, as a personal interest in it, and I'm sure this is true for many of you listening, we're always finding something that connects us, reconnects us, and connects us in a new way to this subject. And it just shows just how vast it is that we can continue to do that, certainly in my case, for the bulk of my life, and long may that continue. It's the essential fascination with this subject, that there is always that something new to discover. Every day is a school day, as the saying goes. And after that visit, I felt that Fort de Lonsin was one of the most impressive Great War sites I've ever visited in all these long years of tramping round Great War battlefields. So I wanted to share something of it with you in this dispatches. So what was the history of Fort de Lonsin? The birth of Belgium came about following, again, that period of Waterloo. Europe changed after Napoleon and Belgium came into being in the 1830s and brought together two distinct communities of people, the Flemish, the Dutch speakers roughly in the west of what became Belgium and the Wallonians, the French speakers who were the bulk of the population and dominated the country of Belgium for quite some time in its, of its history, certainly in terms of language. So the French language dominated Belgium as a country. It was the national language right up to and including the Great War. And a country, that, of course, that was formalised by the Treaty of London in 1839, of which Britain was a guarantor of Belgian neutrality. Belgium was a neutral country. Now, neutral countries obviously keep a standing army to protect themselves. They look on partners like, in the case of Belgium, Britain, to protect them if a bigger enemy comes their way. But they look at ways to protect themselves, not just with a standing army, but also with fortifications. And in the late 19th century, fortifications were built right across Belgium to protect it against possible invaders. And who were those potential invaders? Well, after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 and the establishment of a new nation, Germany, it was pretty clear that potential aggressor who may threaten Belgian borders, Belgian neutrality, may well one day be Germany. So at Liège, 12 forts, 12 strong fortifications were built. Six small ones 
and six large ones. And these forts were designed by the Dutch-born Henri Alexis Brialmont, who was a senior Belgian military engineer. And when you look at these designs, they were clearly influenced by a former military architect, Valba, who was responsible for many of these star-shaped fortifications across Europe, including the city of Ypres, which had had its defences built by Valba centuries before the Great War. And when you look at the design of Briamont's forts, they are influenced, I think, by Valbanesque designs because they were largely star or trapezoid shaped and that meant there were quite kind of severe angles to their walls which created fields of fire so if an enemy approached them they could be hit by fire from different locations they could be enfiladed by artillery fire and shrapnel and later on of course with the advent of machine guns with with those as well and these forts use not just modern weaponry but they use modern concrete to fortify them and this made a, a massive difference in their capabilities their their strength and in terms of the 1880s when the bulk of these forts were built they were cutting edge technology defensive technology of that time each one of the forts each one of the 12 forts around the edge had a variety of armament and within them a defensive garrison meant to man the artillery and infantry to protect the fort as well and they were well placed so they had good observation so on high points where they could see for quite some distance and where they had good fields of fire as well because some of the guns within them could fire over quite some distance and they were placed the 12 forts around the edge so that they were interlocked they had interlocking fields of fire and could protect each other in terms of when those positions were attacked so if one fort gets hit it's got a fort on its flank somewhere to the left or the right which can also lay down fire to support it fort de lancer was a classic example of this ring of steel and concrete that protected liege built in 1888 it was a triangular shape with the walled embrasure to the south to the base of the fort being 300 meters long and the other two sides 235 meters long the garrison within consisted of 350 belgian gunners and 200 infantry support and the men were conscripts the belgian army was a conscript army as were most armies in europe at that time and they came from a wide area of belgium when we look at the records of some of the men who were in there in 1914 they were men from some of the local villages but they were also men from further afield. So there were Wallonians, French speakers, from the region where the fort was located, but there were Flemish from the western part of Belgium as well. So it, it kind of represented Belgium. This one fort, probably like all the forts, represented Belgium as a nation. Its main weapons that defended it were two Capolas with twin 120mm guns, one Coppola with twin 150mm guns, two Coppolas equipped with 210mm howitzers, four 57mm guns in Coppolas, and one electric searchlight also in a Coppola. And a Coppola is a curved turret that 
using engineering could be lifted up, the weapon could be fired, the turret could spin round 360 degrees and the cupola could be dropped as well to give it more protection. So these things sat flush over the top canopy, if you like, of the fort, making them difficult to hit as targets. These main cupolas were all located in one central area of the fort and were each manned on average by 25 Belgian soldiers operating, loading and firing the weapons. They relied on observation from the fort. Some of them had hatches that could be lifted up so that men could observe from the actual cupolas, the turrets themselves. But they also relied on external observation. So there were observation posts in local churches or they planned to use local church spires to observe from and then relay back to the fort, either with static communications or via pigeon. In 1914, they also had an observation post team that we call it, in the, certainly in the British forces, OP team, in a requisitioned car, which was called the Bono Gang, and it was commanded by a Corporal Polar, and their job was to go out, use the car to get around, find out where the enemy was, report back to the fort, and then this mighty weaponry that they had. And when you look at it, 120mm, 150mm, 210mm howitzers, this was a lot of firepower that they had that could be lobbed quite some distance with shells that could be thrown several miles across a battlefield towards an advancing enemy. And within, so those are the compolers, but within the walls of the fort, there were also nine fifty-seven millimeter northern guns that were in embrasures. And so when we look at this fort when it was built in 1888 with all of this firepower combined, it was considered... A formidable defensive position, as were all the Liège forts. And Lonsin itself, like others, were built to withstand direct hits from 210mm shells weighing up to 90 kilograms. And those were the most powerful bits of artillery that were available at that time. Now if we jump on to the outbreak of the Great War, Fort de Lonsin in 1914, Following events in Sarajevo and the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austrian throne, that had led Europe into war very quickly. And Germany, allied with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was now facing two formidable enemies, Russia and France, who were also allied. And what Germany feared in those decades before the Great War, military commanders had looked at this, they feared... Both those countries, France to the west, Russia to the east, mobilising simultaneously and crushing Germany in the middle. So to try and avoid that happening, they developed, Count von Schlieffen had developed his famous Schlieffen plan, a lightning strike against France, knock France out of the war and concentrate on the greater enemy, which was Russia. And that Schlieffen plan was put into operation as Germany began to mobilise on the 1st of August 1914. Fort de Lonsin, and on a bigger scale, Belgium as a whole, saw Germany now as a real threat as it mobilised and prepared for war. They were unlikely to be aware of the implications or even the plans of what Count von Schlieffen had, had drawn up, but it wasn't difficult to imagine German soldiers crossing the Belgian border. And these fears were soon to be realised as German troops 
crossed into Belgium on the 5th of August 1914, heading straight towards Liège. And as part of that Schlieffen plan, an advance of over 55,000 German soldiers were heading straight for the city of Liège and its defences. In Fort de Lonsin, Commandant Naisson commanded a garrison of 550 men from both Flanders and Wallonia, as we've said. And as the Germans drew near, the guns, those mighty guns within the fort, fired in support of Belgian troops who were fighting in the open fields around Liège itself, trying to stem the tide of that Schlieffen plan advance. The infantry from the fort also went into action outside of it at one stage, and their commander was killed on the 6th of August 1914, but not within the fort itself. By the 10th of August, so we're looking at less than a week into the German advance into this part of Belgium, the fort came under increasingly heavy bombardment as the Germans moved up more and more artillery to support their troops, trying to break this circle of steel and concrete around the city of Liège. The guns within the fort kept firing, and the Germans replied with their artillery, but there was no losses within the fort itself until 1am on the 15th of August 1914, when a gunner, Gerard Ladinois, was killed in the fort, the first man to die there. And this kind of proved a bit of an omen, a sad omen, as that date, the 15th of August 1914, would prove to be the key date in the Great War history of Fort de Lonsin. We'll jump on now to modern times. We'll pull away from the past from 110 years ago in 1914 and we'll jump on to the visit that I made just this last week. The fort today is a museum and a site of historical interest and preserved. And when I prepared the tour that we were working on, it was kind of at the top of my list for us to include as part of the itinerary. And we went there, and there's a memorial outside the fort, a big tall column with figures on, and there's a, a modern museum entrance that you go into where there's kind of a visitor's area and then a display of material relating to the history of the fort and the garrison of the fort, their uniforms, their equipment, there are some fantastic models in there showing the construction of the fort, the methods that were used, and then the defences, kind of a plan model, showing where all the turrets were and the layout of the fort. It's an excellent collection. It's kind of an old-style museum. I do like those where there's a lot of exhibits to look at and a lot of personal items relating to the men of the garrison, photographs, identity cards, medals, and, and other paperwork. It makes it a very personal story and although you know this is over 500 men that were in this fort not a small number by including all this kind of personal ephemera it really feels that you're connected to the story of these men and they're not just names in a ledger of a role of honor of men who fought here and then leaving the museum part of it you leave the modern buildings and you go down to the approach to the original entrance of the fort. And there are stylized models, life-size models, of Belgian soldiers in period costume. And you walk past those, and they're pretty impressive, onto the ramp that takes you down to the very gate of the fort itself. And you can see damage to it. You can see the date 
of construction, 1888, above the archway, and you begin to feel as if you're entering the past. You're moving from the modern world to the old world through one of those crisscross pathways of the Great War. And as you come through that entranceway, you take some steps up into the garrison area of the fort and you see where soldiers slept, where their food was prepared and stored. You even see the area where they had toilets. And having been to many other fortifications from the Great War, I must say that these Liège forts had much better toilet facilities in them than some of the Verdun forts for example. They'd obviously thought about that, being in the close confines of a fortification. Perhaps the necessity of having decent loos was part of keeping the morale of your garrison, of your troops, in good condition. And then you just wander around it, you kind of see just how big this fortification was. I mean, there was one part of it, it felt like we were in a kind of a mini street with arched entranceways and windows and then there was a set of stairs going up to one of the turrets, the gun turrets. You could look up and you could see the base of the turret above you and think of gunners running up those stairs, getting ready for combat, preparing their weapons. It's a very atmospheric place. And then as you wander around again, there are more artifacts and more things that link you to the stories of the men who were in this fort in 1914. And when you come out into the what was the parade ground part of the fort. There's a memorial there, a more modern memorial, where concrete army boots are laid out in pairs side by side, each pair representing a casualty within the fort. And I'll put pictures of, of that and some of the other aspects of what the fort looks like today onto the podcast website. And then from there you continue with your tour and you walk up a grass ramp and ahead of you is another one of these stylized figures symbolizing a Belgian soldier of 1914 and you can't see much as you go up that grass slope towards the next bit of the fort but it looks different and if you're not prepared for it it's quite something as you come up onto that bit of plateau where the figure stands and you look to the central part of the fort where if you've looked at the model of the fort in the museum that's where all the bunkers and the cupolas and the guns were located. What you're looking at, even after 110 years, that's hell on earth. Because what you're looking at was the fate of that fort in 1914. Rubble, smashed metal and memorials. So what happened here at Fort de Lonsin on that day, 15th of August, 1914? Well, the fort, as you may recall, was built to withstand 210mm shells. But in nearly three decades since this fort was built, and the creation of the state of Germany, and the money that that state spent on its military, on its weapons, on its armament, and of course its artillery, meant that weaponry was upgraded. In the early 1910s, the German army developed the 42-centimetre Kurzer Marine Cannon, better known as the Big Bertha. This 420mm howitzer was developed by the Krupps Armament Company, and it's said that Big Bertha was the daughter of Herr Krupps, and the cannon was named after her. Whether that was considered a compliment or not isn't recorded in the pages 
of history. This was a massive, massive howitzer, a 420mm weapon, which fired a nearly one-ton shell more than nine kilometres. The shell itself stood one and a half metres tall, and it had an 80 centimetre long brass shell case that slotted in behind it that fired it up through the barrel. And the gun wasn't like a filled gun or a small howitzer. This was a massive, massive piece of equipment. It had a very big crew, but it could only fire eight rounds an hour. So not eight rounds a minute, eight rounds an hour. It took time to winch up these one-ton shells, get them into place, load them into the breech, put the shell case in behind it, lay the gun, get it ready to fire eight rounds an hour. Now, for a 42-centimeter howitzer, that still is a pretty impressive rate of fire when you think of the potential devastation that a one-ton high-explosive shell could cause. There were only a handful of these big berths available in 1914, but they had been brought forward to crack open that ring of steel around Liège when assaults on the forts had failed. And two guns from the artillery battery, commanded by Capitaine Erdmann, fired on Fort de Lonsin, and the 25th round fired by those guns hit the dead centre of the fort at around 20 past five in the evening on the 15th of August 1914. That shell ploughed through the earth and the concrete and the gravel and detonated catastrophically in the powder room of the fort where over 12,000 kilograms of explosive were stored and that shell exploding amongst all of that powder caused a massive catastrophic explosion that tore apart the central area of the fort. And as I say, when you stop come up that slope and you see even 110 years later the results of that catastrophic explosion the first thing that enters your mind is hell on earth the fort's commander commandant naissons described it as a titanic volcano which destroyed the central superstructure of the fort and all of its weapons and the rubble and blast crushed killed asphyxiated and burned alive over half the garrison of the fort. In a single moment, Fort de Lonsin was silenced forever. And soon afterwards, the fort, as with all those forts around Liège, they fell and their short war came to an end. So when we stand here and look at that rubble now, nearly 110 years after the event, it's a sobering thought to think, that beneath it are more than 250 men who still lie buried under that concrete and steel. Afterwards, as I somewhat soberingly walked through that rubble, there are pathways you can take and you can see the smashed cupolas, the metal torn apart as if it was a toy, and all these huge chunks of concrete, each one weighing several tonnes, just thrown together, as you walk over that, in silence really, you head towards the very point of the fort, the forward position of the fort itself, where there were a number of 57mm guns that could fire potentially on an enemy. But now this takes you through the ditch of the fort, the inner ditch, 
into what has become the chapel, the place where the garrison are remembered. And you go in through the door, into the corridor that takes you along, and you see some of the original crosses that commemorated those who had fallen in the fort and were buried on the fort. There was a small military cemetery there, as well as the men buried beneath the rubble. There were even some of the coffins that were used to bury the dead when the bodies were removed to be buried in this crypt. Those coffins were kept as memorials and they're on display. And then there are photographs and ceramic plaques commemorating some of those who had died. And it takes you upstairs to where some of the actual burial sites within the crypt are. And they're vaulted boxes with the names of the fallen written on them, their name, their units whether they were a gunner in the fort or an infantry soldier, where they came from, their date of birth, and of course all of them the same date of death, the 15th of August 1914. In some of the vaults there are more than one soldier. I remember seeing one that commemorated 22 men, all of them unknown. And you can pause there, sit down on one of the little benches, look at those vaults, read those names, and think of the fate of the men within this fort on that summer's day in 1914. On the 11th of November 1922, the body of Belgium's unknown warrior was laid to rest in a special tomb in Brussels. Belgium, following the example of other nations who had by then already done this, created an unknown warrior to symbolise the dead of their nation. One of the five coffins that were taken from key Belgian battlefields of the Great War, symbolically, was selected by a blinded veteran of the conflict, and one of those five coffins, whichever one it was, had come from Fort de Lonsin, one of its garrison, an unidentified soldier buried within the fort, had been selected to potentially become Belgium's unknown warrior. And who knows, maybe that tomb in Brussels contains the body of one of Lonsin's garrison, those brave men who stood fast in August 1914, perhaps against almost impossible odds, the epitome of brave little Belgium. For a while, Belgium's heart was broken by the loss of forts like Fort de Lonsin, and the defeat of its army as the Germans pushed through the country, killing and murdering civilians as they went and burning down great buildings, continued to pull on the heartstrings of a nation. But while Fort de Lonsin was a defeat in 1914, for the Belgian soldier of the Great War, men who stood fast and would later stand for four years along the Issa Canal, holding on to the last desperate part of Belgium, forthright and determined that only victory would do to restore their nation. For them, stories like Fort de Lonsin and places like the forts around Liège were at the very centre of the war that they had fought, at the very centre of their old front line. You've been listening to Dispatches, 
part of the Old Frontline podcast with me, military historian Paul Reed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please think about leaving a review on your favourite podcast platform, giving us a rating and leaving a comment on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter and if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash oldfrontline or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.